Coming up on Philosophy Talk. If babies are so smart, why are we so stupid? Can studying the minds of babies help unravel age-old philosophical conundrums about consciousness, truth, and morality? Looking at what babies do, at what they look at, at what they reach for, you can learn the incredible range of things that human beings can learn. Babies as little scientists. When babies are just playing, just exploring things, they're actually doing experiments. They're actually putting nature to the test. Our guest is Alison Gottmik, author of The Philosophical Baby. Babies aren't living in a blooming buzzing confusion. Literally, from the moment they're born, they already are relating themselves to other people. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. Give them an environment that's rich, full of, you know, mud and livestock and relatives, and they'll find out what's, what's going on. From the Minds of Babies, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today we're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originated at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today... From the minds of babies. Can't imagine what it's like to be a newborn baby. For months you've been all alone in this warm and cozy womb, your every need catered to. Then suddenly, out of the blue, you're thrust into a chaotic world filled with strange new sights and sounds. And people, lots of people. Big people. And they're doing all sorts of things you have no idea about, like whacking you on the bottom. All you can do is lie there, looking helpless, cute, and dumb. Well, John, fortunately, babies may look dumb, but they're actually a lot smarter than they look. I mean, they get their bearings in the world very quickly. And before you know it, these helpless creatures are speaking a language, having deep insights about the causal structure of the physical world and, and the moral structure of the social world. It's, it's amazing. Well, that raises the question. Just how do babies manage to get from where they start to having all of these abilities, to learning so much, so quickly and effortlessly? Well, there are at least two possible answers to that question, John, at least two. One is that babies are so good at figuring things out because we're so good at teaching them things. That was basically the empiricist view in philosophy and the behaviorist view in psychology. This view supposes that a baby's mind starts as a tabula rasa, a blank slate, nothing written on it. This view grants that babies have an inborn capacity to learn from experience, but insists that until they actually acquire some experience, they won't know anything. So babies on this view really are born dumb, and our jobs as parents and teachers is to help arrange the kids' experience so that all the right things and none of the wrong things are written onto that blank slate. So we have a big responsibility on this. Yeah, view. yeah. It'd be nice to have a, a view that gave us less responsibility, and there is one. The second possibility is that although babies appear to be good at learning, they really don't need to learn much of anything because they come into the world already knowing a lot more than we would have thought. That's the nativist view. There's a very long tradition of nativist thinking in philosophy and a somewhat shorter but still robust tradition of it in psychology and especially linguistics. So uh, on this nativist view, babies are born smart. I mean, really smart. Think of how effortlessly a kid acquires her first language. She doesn't do it by sitting in boring language classes, reading confusing grammar books, or memorizing long vocabulary lists. We just 
talk to them. And, and before you know it, I mean, really, in the blink of an eye, they're talking back. And they continue talking back at you for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, the speed and reliability with which kids acquire their first language has convinced a lot of people that children aren't blank slates at all. Kids just seem to come specially equipped for picking up language, as if they had the basic structure of language hardwired into their brains right from the start, with their only real problem to figure out which particular language is being spoken. Right, right, you know, and this sort of nativist approach is pretty attractive. It has a lot going for it, I think, but it can also get pretty extreme, at least in some thinkers' hands. The, the philosopher Jerry Fodor, an arch-nativist if there ever was one, is famous for arguing that pretty much all concepts are innate. And, and in his view, the only thing the kid really has to learn is which specific words, like how do you say quark around here, the people around her use to express which of the concepts she already has. So a, a baby already starts knowing a lot of physics and mathematics, and I guess by the time you get to someone like me, an enormous amount has been forgotten. But at any rate, the baby knows all this and just lacks the right words to express what it knows. It just seems incredibly implausible. I, I, I agree with you. That seems really implausible. But you know what's equally implausible is the idea that kids are just blank slates. There's clearly a lot going on in babies' minds right from the start much more than empiricists and behaviorists have ever imagined, and maybe less than the nativist imagined. So we've got to find another way. Sadly, Ken, in order to figure out what's inside of the minds of babies, we're going to have to leave the realm of pure a priori philosophy. Oh, shut. We're going to need the help of someone who doesn't just think about babies and their brains, but actually digs around, metaphorically speaking, uh, in the hidden reaches of the infant mind. That would be the renowned developmental psychologist Alison Gottman author of the best-selling The Philosophical Baby, What Children's Minds Tell Us About Truth, Love, and the Meaning of Life. She'll be joining us in just a little bit. And we plan to get lots of insights from our live audience here at the Marsh as well. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, April Dembowski, talks to someone who pokes around the minds of babies while they poke around in the playground. She files this report. <laughs> The sandbox is a critical place of learning for young children. These kids are on the playground of the Harold E. Jones Child Study Center at UC Berkeley. They're playing a game called Volcano. They buried a garden hose underneath a big mound of sand, and water, or hot lava, is spouting out the top, and the kids are trying to stop it. It's exploding, quick! Jane Perry is a researcher and preschool teacher overseeing the game. She explains that what's happening for these small firefighters is more than just child's play. It does incite all kinds of problem solving. It really, they're operating really at the peak of their thinking right now. These kids are three and four years old. Until now, they've had their parents at their side for life's basics, eating, sleeping, potty training, but this game introduces them to a sense of independence. Now the focus is on interacting with their peers. This is, you know, unusual to have how many kids do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine kids collaborating together. The whole point is to keep the game going, to keep having fun. To do that, the kids need buy-in from each other, much like adults need when they want to produce a concert or start a company. These collaboration skills are honed on the playground. Perry observes how one girl gets the others to go along with her. She's delicately suggesting that 
her idea might be more effective. These are the subtle negotiating strategies that kids use. Sometimes the play is all about the negotiation itself. Often, by the time kids agree who will be the mommy and daddy in a game of house, everyone has moved on to the slide. Preschool teacher Christy Schumacher has observed many such negotiations. We're eating hot dogs, right? Right. We like ketchup on them, right? No, but we like mustard, too. Oh, right, right. Yeah, we like mustard, too. And we don't like onions, right? Yeah, they really often really have to stretch, you know, for their peers. As an adult, they can throw a fit or, you know, or comply or whatever. But with their peers, it's like, ooh, they have to work it out or else game's over sometimes, yeah. At this age, the majority of games that kids play are make-believe. We're pretending to be Indians. I'm playing cake. Boat, fire truck, rocket ship. I'm playing with my mask. Chocolate, vanilla, it's a rainbow cake. Research shows that pretend play teaches kids discipline and impulse control. In one study, kids were asked to stand still against a wall for as long as they could. Most couldn't last even a minute. But when kids were told to make believe they were guards at a factory, standing watch over the building, they stood at attention for four minutes. Pretend couches the momentum and focuses it in a way that's really directive. Educator Jane Perry says that giving kids a framework for an activity helps them exercise higher level skills. But government funding rewards schools where kids get good test scores, not where kids invent sophisticated imaginary friends. Very didactic performance oriented learning activities are okay for targeted information but are not good for more holistic skills. Perry says the best thing parents can do for the young children is take them outside. They can have the opportunity to really use their whole body, which is what kids need to be doing. The more their whole body is involved with thinking, the more integrated their growth is. For Philosophy Talk, I'm April Domboski. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.